This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... In villages like Andrivka that lived under Russian occupation, those who survived can now tell us what happened here. We identified very gruesome war crimes, such as summary executions, men taken out onto the streets and shot in the back of their head. An unprovoked war in Europe is now underway. How are you going to negotiate with someone who's accused of war crimes? Russia's assault on the doorstep of European countries has jolted the EU to action. We shouldn't just think about sanctions as some kind of silver bullet that's going to come in and sort out the situation. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, we're going to discuss again the ongoing war in Ukraine and some of the more really disturbing aspects that have been emerging over the last week or so. Allegations, very serious allegations of war crimes and what the international community can actually do about that. My guests today are Hugh Williamson. He's Europe and Central Asia Director for Human Rights Watch. Erica Moray of Geneva's Graduate Institute, a specialist in international sanctions. And as ever, our analyst, Daniel Warner. Hugh, I'm going to start with you because Human Rights Watch, almost the first to publish really credible evidence of apparent war crimes, taking place in Ukraine, it's increasingly looking like these were not isolated, rogue, random events. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found and then what kind of action you as a human rights organization would expect this to to trigger from the world? Thanks so much for having me on the program. Um, You're referring to our report, which identified apparent war crimes in several areas of of Ukraine, which were until recently under Russian control. And we identified very gruesome war crimes, such as summary executions in two cases, seven men taken out onto the streets and shot in the back of their head at at short distance. So the bloodiest of types of war crimes. And we also identified an example, an awful example of a woman who was raped several times by a Russian soldier in a school in eastern Ukraine other examples of of looting by Russian soldiers, and so on, other grave crimes. Explosions right across this vast country. This comes on top of other sorts of apparent war crimes, such as bombing civilian buildings, targeting civilians, cutting off aid convoys to Mariupol, and the illegal use of certain types of weapons anti-personnel mines and cluster munitions. And as you suggested, our report, recent report, was the first one to sort of look at those very targeted, brutal forms of war crimes of Russian soldiers simply executing people. And since then, there's been perhaps more evidence of that coming out, and we've been gathering that as well. You asked what we would like to happen. We want thorough investigations, of course. We're continuing. We're pleased that the Ukrainian government has launched an investigation into what happened in Bucha and elsewhere. We support that initiative. We're pleased the European Union and the United States have also decided to send teams of investigators, including forensic specialists. That's what's really necessary to do a proper forensic investigation into the bodies, gathering testimony, 
and so on. That's not easy in a war situation, of course not. But we do call on Ukraine to do this in a very thorough and complete way. Erica, can I come to you? I know you're a specialist in sanctions. You're also a specialist in international relations, transatlantic relations. Now, there is this hard evidence and investigations, as you said, are going to take place. But there is this big elephant in the room, isn't there, that that, uh, the alleged perpetrator, Russia, is a permanent member of the UN Security Council. That's right. And it's not just in the Russian context that we've been seeing this issue coming up in recent years when it comes to global governance. You, You have to remember that many of the world's biggest global security crises haven't been addressed appropriately or effectively through the UN Security Council because of either disagreements between the P5 members or actions of some of the members. I now give the floor. And so if you're just joining us, months of paralysis inside the UN Security Council now lead to essentially a diplomatic dead end. And we only have to think as far as Syria, Venezuela, chemical weapons attacks, human rights abuses, uh, cyber attacks and so on. These have all been really important um, issues in the security domain and international relations that um, simply haven't been addressed through the multilateral fora. Danny? Two questions. I mean, first to Hugh, I mean, if we go back to the history of, of war crimes, we're dealing with the end of the Second World War and the victors set up the tribunals in Nuremberg and Tokyo. Uh, Russia has not been defeated. So by going after war crimes, A, can you ever get to Mr. Putin? But secondly, how is that going to affect the negotiated settlement? How are you going to negotiate with someone who's accused of war crimes? Those are good questions. First of all, it's not just Russia we're, we're going after, in your phrase. We're not really going after anybody. We're doing our job of monitoring how the laws of war are being upheld or not by all sides. I should note that we've also published severe allegations of apparent war crimes by Ukraine to do with the handling of prisoners of war. Um, two reports we've done on that so far, and that's very concerning. We hope Ukraine will act on that to stop mistreating prisoners of war. In terms of how far it can go up, part of our work is also to establish the chain of command. I talked about Russian soldiers executing people. We need to know whether they were told to do so and who told them to do so and whether that's part of a pattern or not. That's too early to say. Your final question, the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is, the, is in a sense the body which started this process in this war. The International Criminal Court is going to move forward with an investigation into alleged war crimes in Ukraine. Already in early March, the prosecutor launched an investigation. We're doing the work we would normally do, in fact. I mean, we're, this is what we do in a, in a conflict situation. We gather information. We make it available. We think it's good that they've started in a prompt way because then obviously evidence is fresh. You can gather it more quickly and... We also hope there will be a signal to Russia that the ICC is involved, Ukraine's launched an investigation. There's quite a lot of publicity around these apparent war crimes now. We hope that might change behaviour on Russia's part. Erica, do you want to respond to that? Do you think there's there's any likelihood that, I mean, we, it's always been said, this, oh, the spotlight's on you, you better refrain. Do you think that's likely? Well, I think Hugh's point on signalling is a really important one. And this is where sanctions come into play as well, because sanctions have various different impacts. And one of them is the symbolic kind of naming and shaming function. It's often the one that perhaps is most successful when it comes to sanctions use. And I think what we're seeing in the Russian case is 
a very strong political will to send a really clear message at the moment uh, through concerted action across a wide range of countries and also private sector companies around the world. Both of these things take a long time, though, don't they? I mean, if you look at former Yugoslavia, the route to The Hague was very long. Not much has happened with Syria. The war has been going on more than a decade. The regime is still in power. And sanctions as well take a very long time. Danny, I think you wanted to say something about that. I was just going to say to Erica uh, that we have North Korea, Cuba have sanctions against them. Uh, Do we see, in in Hugh's expression, a change of behavior? Uh, And that's what we're really looking for. Uh, It does seem to me that this is an unusual situation because we want the behavior to change now. And yet all of these processes, as Imogen said, take time. Uh, and so there's the problem with sanctions and with the notion of war crimes. The massacre in our city of Butcher is only one. The UN needs to act immediately, President Zelensky demanded. If it can't do anything beyond talking about the war in Ukraine, then it might as well close down. Imagining Mr. Zelensky and his speech to the Security Council, he wants the fighting to stop now. Human rights violations, sanctions are long-term changes in behavior. And the question is, how are we going to stop the fighting now? And I understand the human rights aspect and the sanctions and changing behavior, but this is going to take time. And Zelensky doesn't have the time, and the people of Ukraine don't have the time now. Yeah, I think you're right on that point that I also already mentioned the signaling function of sanctions. Another couple of purposes or objectives that they have is first and foremost, to try and change behavior, whether it's a withdrawal from Ukraine or slow down the invasion, enforce some kind of shift in tactics. And what we know from sanctions regimes elsewhere in the world is that this is actually the hardest objective for sanctions to meet. The second type is a kind of constraining effect. So by limiting access to vital resources or technologies, military technologies, for example, or access to the internet to limit Russia's ability to launch cyber attacks, This is another impact of sanctions can have in terms of kind of constraining, slowing down progress, um, raising the costs of the war. But I think you're right when it comes to some of these longstanding uh, sanctions cases. You know, Cuba has been in place since 1960, 1959. DPRK has been in place for a very long time. So has Iran, Syria. And what we see in the Russian context is these sanctions have been agreed in five weeks And so that is really unprecedented on many levels. The European Union and its partners are working to cripple Putin's ability to finance his war machine. Asset freezes on five Russian banks. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, said the country's suspending the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project with Russia. What we do know, though, from sanctions scholarship is that sanctions that are imposed quickly are sometimes those that are most successful. So I would say time will tell whether this kind of extremely fast imposition of of sanctions will actually have some kind of an impact or benefit on some level. I want to stay with that aspect of time will tell um, for a moment before we go on to whether Europe is prepared to actually impose even stricter sanctions. Hugh, we were talking really in parallel the process towards accountability, the process towards whether sanctions will work. And if you are dealing with a big, powerful country, which Russia is, how likely is it? You you get the impression the Kremlin, they don't care whether they can't travel anymore. They don't 
care about the economic hardship. So where is the actual route to, to accountability? I suppose in some ways we're quite lucky because we're not busy with sort of likelihoods and scanning the future. We're busy with documenting what's happening in the, in the application of the laws of war and, and supporting the accountability channels that do exist. And I think we should be a bit more optimistic about that than perhaps others are. I mean, we have national systems, the U Ukrainian government can take action. Let's remember, of course, that under international human rights law, it's actually Russia that should be taking responsibility for war crimes committed by as their the soldiers. occupying power. As the occupying power, exactly. And then there's the International Criminal Court. But there's also universal justice as well, you know, and that's also important, increasingly important. We saw that in the case in, in Germany in last year and this year with the Syrian torturer being jailed and so on. So I think it's important to focus on what the paths could be rather than become pessimistic about the current nature of the Russian regime. This is an earth-shattering change also for Russia, isn't it? You know, politically, socially, and so on. Who knows what Russia will be like in a year or two or five years' time? Well, that is the huge question which we're all pondering, I think, at the moment. Danny, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, Hugh, I want to come back to President Zelensky's address to the Security Council because, in effect, he was challenging the Security Council by saying, you're responsible for peace and security. What have you done about this? On the other hand, if we look from Geneva, human rights, humanitarian law, I understand exactly what you're saying. But in terms of peace and security, is what you're doing going to help a solution to the problem on the ground now? That's my problem. As we know, the Security Council is, is blocked because of Russia's veto and others' vetoes as well. But let's think about other, other parts of the UN which have a role. Human Rights Council, early March, set up a commission of inquiry. That can be an effective body. We expect it to be an effective body in, in starting an investigation of, what's, of war crimes in, in Ukraine, can work closely with the international criminal courts. There are effective methods and means through which the UN can act, even though the Security Council is paralyzed at the moment on this issue. I think also I have never talked to a senior UN official, whether New York, the political side, or Geneva, the humanitarian side, who doesn't say that you can only build sustainable peace with accountability. And this has been said for Sri Lanka, famously Rwanda, South Africa. And the more we have, in my sense, universal jurisdiction and the more we hear about what international law is human rights violations people expect this now memories are long just just quickly i think that's absolutely right and that's an interesting one because often human rights organizations like ourselves are the ones which are pushing for that you need accountability in the transition period after conflict and often political leaders tend to sort of brush that aside to some extent even from a well-meaning point of view we need to build political systems again. We need to be in transitional governments and so on and so forth. It happened in Sudan, for instance, recently. But, you know, in this case, it's interesting because there seems to be some determination on the part of the Western countries, at least, to not let that happen, to hold Putin accountable for what's happened, or Russia, at least, accountable, and not accept Russia, for instance, continuing to occupy parts of Ukraine. Who knows what will happen? But there does seem a clear determination, at least at the moment, for some sort of accountability. Here in Butra, we saw our humanity being shattered. The whole world is mourning with the people of Butra. So, Erica, these sanctions, even if there's some kind of peace deal or ceasefire or frozen conflict, 
the sanctions are going to have to stay for a long time. What we typically see is that sanctions nowadays tend to stay in place for a really long time. And um, it also depends on what types of sanctions we're talking about. What we know is that something that's really important is that sanctions need to be used as a form of leverage as well. And that can heighten their effectiveness. So they need to be combined really carefully with other policy tools. And we shouldn't just think about sanctions as some kind of silver bullet that's going to come in and sort out the situation. We need to envisage a panoply of different instruments alongside things like diplomacy, of course, which is currently very much at its limits, um, mediation, and then referral to legal tribunals in the past has been shown to have been a really important combination when we're talking about accountability here with sanctions. At least 417 companies have either withdrawn, suspended, or scaled back operations in Russia. On Netflix, H&M and Oracle are the latest batch of companies to halt their Russian operations. I should add on that point as well that measuring impact of sanctions is a really difficult area because we know they don't operate in a vacuum, they don't operate in isolation. Often the impacts are invisible as well. So it's very hard for us to say with any certainty, and I I would say in the future as well, it will be really hard for us to say sanctions were responsible for a big change in behaviour here. We probably will never know whether it's sanctions or something else or a combination of various things underway. So where are we going with that? Because we've heard some small splits in what was initially total unity in Europe about sanctions calls for a complete end to oil and gas imports. The global energy industry in crisis. Gas and oil prices are surging as the US and Europe consider banning imports from Russia. But can they live without Russian energy? Now, we hear people say that will destroy Europe's, particularly Germany's economy. But thanks partly to reports like Human Rights Watchers, I did a straw poll just of of my neighbours on my street over the last day or two. They're not aid workers. They're not journalists. They said, no, we should do it. We can be cold this winter. Danny, have you, did you sense that sentiment? Yeah, no, I, and I wanted to follow that, Imogen, you said before, the, the question, Erica, of smart sanctions. In other words, how could you limit the sanctions just to the government of Russia or the people responsible, the oligarchs, with not having what Imogen said before, the populations being affected, whether it be uh, in Germany, Switzerland, or especially in Russia. And we've seen that sanctions before have had very nasty effects on large populations, not just limited to the government. Who wants to come in there? Erica, go ahead. So on in the question of costs, I think it's inevitable that there are going to be costs on, on both sides and they're going to be significant because we haven't seen sanctions of this type of scale before against a member of the G20, against an economy that is so integrated into world markets and such an important energy supplier. So first of all, it's going to be tough on both sides. Interestingly, I did a a report with a number of colleagues uh, looking at the first round of sanctions back in 2014, 15, 16. And what we found was actually quite surprising that the countries within Europe that were most opposed to the sanctions, to take a few examples, Italy, Cyprus, Hungary, Greece, they ended up being the countries that were least impacted in terms of lost trade revenues, even though they were arguing against the sanctions based on an, an economic argument. The countries that were most hit in terms of lost exports were Russia's neighbours, Poland, the Baltic states and so on. And yet they were the most supportive. And so it just goes to show that we can have disagreements, we can have lack of unity. 
But the fact that these, these types of measures have been agreed so quickly shows a really remarkable unity in spite of the diverging views within the bloc and also around the world. Everyday Russians are starting to feel the squeeze of international sanctions from a war that some don't support. People are fighting for sugar in a Moscow supermarket. So it's my, my point would be indeed the impact on ordinary people and particularly from the point of view of Russia. It's actually a responsibility of the states which impose sanctions, for instance, in this case on Russia, to monitor how effective those sanctions are, and particularly to monitor whether they're impactful on the most vulnerable in society, the poorest, for instance, or marginalized groups. And we expect them to do that. And we want to monitor whether the US, the EU, other groups are actually doing that. For instance, the impact of the cutting off of SWIFT, whether people can access money and go shopping and that sort of thing. And that's a really important thing. I've not seen much evidence yet that they are really doing that monitoring, but we continually encourage them to do so and to modify the sanctions which they are imposing in order to reduce the impact as much as possible on vulnerable and marginalized groups. Well, that's an interesting point because we had this controversy in Switzerland about Nestle. Good food, good life. That's the chief slogan. Nestle. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky blasted Nestle for carrying on business as usual with Russia. Now, probably our hearts do not bleed for Nestle, but they say they followed the sanctions as set out by the European Union. And then Ukraine came, Zelensky addressed the Swiss and um, he said, no, Nestle should stop selling everything. And so they moved to stop selling more things like you can't get a Kit Kat anymore and you can't have Nesquik. And I do wonder that we're moving towards less targeted sanctions out of pressure from Ukraine. Yeah, this is a really good point. What we call it in, in academia, we call it de-risking or overcompliance. And what we've seen in the Russian case is an absolutely unprecedented um, withdrawal of multinational companies from Russia. And we can laugh about Kit Kats or Levi Jeans or Harley Davidson, but there are, there are a whole range of other goods that are also now being pulled out of the country, um, technologies for all kinds of sectors. When you talk about Nestle, for example, is it impacting on the exports of infant formula, which uh, of course Nestle is a major producer of that. So I think there's some really important considerations here so we don't just have the sanctions in place, we have this enormous amplifying effect. And the very simple fact that SWIFT is not operating now with certain banks, that in itself will have an enormous um, de-risking effect across the banking world more widely. And we also see this um, happening in terms of the trade in essential goods as well. We, we've documented this in cases such as Syria, Afghanistan, Iran where even the producers of software or hardware that is vital in this trade may be very reluctant to provide their goods to a certain country because of fear of the sanctions or because of the increased bureaucratic burden that's placed upon them to navigate what they can and can't do. Danny, I mean, you've got colleagues in academia in Moscow. What are they saying to you about this? I mean, because we all, we're all saying, are they noticing the effects? Do they feel it? Are they going to say, no, that's enough, we should stop this war? For the moment, they're very quiet. Uh, 600 students at Megimo signed a letter against the war, but the rector and the officials of Megimo came out with a video for the war. Uh, so I think people of a certain cosmopolitan background are being very quiet and are afraid to say more now. But I want to come to Hugh, question for Hugh. 
the war has to end, there has to be some kind of negotiation. How does one negotiate with an indicted war criminal? Let's assume that Putin and certain people stay. How are you going to negotiate? Are they going to ask for amnesty in the deal? I honestly, it's a very good question. I honestly don't have a very clear answer to that. I think negotiations are going to be very difficult because whether there will be a negotiations, let's think a bit more broadly, whether this will be a classic end to a conflict in the way of, an, of a negotiation. Russia will still exist, I could imagine. Who knows? Who don't know? It's difficult to speculate about that. But I think I don't buy the argument that pushing for investigations now and accountability now somehow hinders that process. I think that process should be part of and influence the way the negotiations at the end of a conflict take place. Apple is taking a stand against Russia in response to the escalating war in Ukraine. The company paused product sales across the country and removed Russian state media outlets from the App Store. One word on, on sanctions, um, just adding to the point that Erica made about companies fleeing Russia. One of the things we've been working on, we've been working with technology companies to encourage them not to flee quite so fast, to encourage them to have some technology support for internet access, for instance, social media access in Russia, because we see freedom of information as a basic human right. And such a swift withdrawal by social media companies and technology giants actually undermines that freedom. So we're calling on them to maintain some infrastructure in the country. Erica. Another area when it comes to uh, the withdrawal of tech companies regards remittance providers. And what we know is that the sending of personal or household remittances by um, the Russian diaspora around the world into Russia is, of course, an important source of funds in the country. And that ha many of these, these platforms have withdrawn. I would also say, though, I, I think that it's probably within President Putin's calculations that all of this was going to happen. And we saw a great deal of preparation on various levels. So ultimately, the the pressures that are being felt in Russia are, are probably part of the strategic planning, or at least um, may have come as some surprise, the rapidity and breadth of the, the withdrawal. We are actually close to the end of the programme, but there is one key thing that I wanted to talk about, and that's looking towards the future. You know, we want a peaceful world. We want a peaceful Europe. We have this enormous country, powerful militarily, a nuclear power, which is the aggressor, has started a war, appears to be committing some very serious human rights violations. So we want there to be justice. We want there to be punishment or deterrence. But I think most people say it's the regime, but not the whole people. We don't like the Kremlin, but we like Russia. How do we find that balance? And how do we let ordinary Russians know that there is a way to exist together peacefully and that we're not trying to punish all of them. I would say from a human rights perspective, we're looking for a Russia which emphasizes a couple of key aspects given the Ukraine conflict now. One is that a Russia which stands up to and is accountable for the terrible war crimes it, it's been committing and offers to send people to the ICC, offers to engage in investigations. That may sound like blue sky thinking, but that's the sort of Russia I think we would we would like to imagine. We haven't talked to about the situation in Russia at all, but we also imagine a Russia where there is freedom of speech and freedom of information, freedom of assembly. So thousands of people are not rounded up and thrown into prison just for signing petitions or protesting on the streets. Civil society can organize, political opposition parties can organize, political leaders are not in jail. From our point of view, that's a way of imagining the future. 
those two things, accountability and respect for human rights in Russia. My question is, yes, I, that is an ideal way of imagining the future, but how do we get there? How do the Russians who want that get there? It seems just so difficult. You, right in, you empower the Russians to, to do that. You, 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 you respect and you support Russian activists who are doing these things. Europe and other countries could give them a lot more support in doing that. You enable them to organize and you put pressure, obviously, on Russia to, to allow that to happen, I think. There's no magic bullet, but I think it's sort of enabling civil society to organize as much as they can. This war is so unfair, so unhuman, so unforgivable. Ukrainians are our relatives, our colleagues, our friends. Can I just ask you, Danny and, and Erica, together, you were in academia. One of the things I read, just a small thing in a Swiss newspaper, was together with sanctions and condemnation and sending weapons, we should be offering more exchanges to Russian students, cultural exchanges, showing them we're not against you, there's a different way of living, we want partnerships with Russia, but in this kind of way. Do you think that's a good idea, Danny? I think it was a good idea, and I was part of that and have taught in Moscow. But I do think that Mr. Putin has gone beyond that and that many of the students at Megimo, many of the students from Russia who were here in Switzerland, we've gone to another level. Uh, and the question of accommodating Russia and Russians into the Western world, I think we're at a situation where Putin has made Russia a pariah, uh, and we have to deal with that at this moment. There are no humanitarian or human rights laws being respected by the Russian government now, and that's something we have to accept for the moment. Erica, you're nodding. I think it's really important at the current time where there's this incredible international consensus that uh, a very strong response needs to be shown to Russia. We saw Guy Verhofstadt yesterday in the European Parliament calling for a full embargo against, or full sanctions, which I take to mean full embargo against Russia. This is really, really unprecedented. What I think is very important that needs to stay in the minds of policymakers here is that what is the objective? Is it punitive economic pain? How does that translate to some kind of political gain? And that's really key here, because when we see sanctions and diplomacy and so on, there needs to be carrots alongside the sticks. But of course, in the Russian context, and given the depravity and the seriousness of the abuses that we're seeing in Ukraine, it's very hard to remain on the kind of negotiating table at the moment. I think another added factor here is the Russian state's ability to manipulate the information that is reaching the Russian people and its sophisticated use of disinformation. So it's incredibly important here for the West and other partners around the world to be countering disinformation and putting out a very clear message to the Russian people wherever it can. And that includes about the impacts of sanctions to make it clear that essential trade will still reach the Russian people, that Russian diaspora can still send money home to their families. And I think this will play a really vital role going forward in terms of cultural relations, for example. Okay, I've just got one final quick fire round question to each of you. And that is, what would you say to a Russian parent, father, mother, can't leave, isn't one of these young IT people who can hop off to, to Yerevan or, or Tbilisi, staying there as a teacher or a nurse or a doctor and thinking, what is my future in this country that I love, but I don't like the government? What is my future? What can I do? Danny, I'm going to start with you, then Erica, then Hugh. Yeah, I think it's a terrible situation. 
I think there's a hope in the West that Putin will be overthrown and that somehow there'll be a drastic change. I don't see that happening. And I think for the near future, it's going to be very sad for the people in Russia in terms of their future. And we just have to hope that things will change. But I'm, for the near future, I don't see that happening. Erica? I'm inclined to agree with Danny that it's going to be hard for the Russian people to access balanced and fair press. But if those that are able to and uh, form their own view of the situation, applying pressure to the government. But of course, this is incredibly difficult in the Russian context, and this could come at a a grave price to their own security. So I I agree it's it's an incredibly difficult situation on all sides. Hugh, final word from you. What would you say to the ordinary Russian thinking, oh, God, where do I go from here? I would say have courage and have strength for the future if you feel able Stand up for your views, express your views if you feel you can keep safe. But most of all, have courage and have strength that things may be a lot better in the future at some point. Okay, that's it for this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Hugh Williamson, Erica Murray and our analyst Daniel Warner. And thank you to all of you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes. From a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75 to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.